Handy History Teaching Tips, blogs in a conversational style. Handy History Teaching Tips are conversational podcasts designed to help history teachers with tips, examples and ideas about history teaching. Sally Thorne, that's me, is a head of department and senior examiner. Helen Snelson was a head of department and now trains history teachers. Between us, we have more years classroom history teaching experience than we are going to admit here. Both of us regularly write resources and present at conferences. We are proudly history specific and practical in our approach. Our hope is that this podcast will become something of a problem page for history teachers. Think of Helen and I as your agony aunts. If you're wrestling with something particularly tricky and need some help, drop us an email at handyhistoryteachingtips at gmail.com or tweet us. I'm at Mrs Thorne and Helen is at Snelson H. And we will see what we can cook up between us. This episode is part of our series, Doing History Better. And in this one, we're in discussion with my colleague, Kate Smee, who I co-teach politics with in our collaborative sixth form. Hi, Kate. Hi. Hello, Kate. Welcome. Can you tell us a bit about yourself, please, so that uh, we we introduce uh, our co-podcaster for the day? Hi. Uh, So I teach in a uh, multi-ethnic school in central Bristol. Uh, I'm head of humanities there. I've taught history and had various other jobs. I must be approaching 25 years now. So, yeah, quite a long time. Yeah, a long time. And, and, you know, so clearly history is your love. And what drew you into history in the first place? How was your experience of school history? Well, most of my secondary school history, actually, I detested it. I went to um, a, a selective all-girls school, and they had a, one history teacher who was just revolting. She used, when she got crossed, she used to hit, whack you on the head with a, with a book, quite a big book, I might add. Um, and her aim seemed to be to try and get your head to actually smack into the desk with the effort. And she taught. She seemed to have carefully chosen the most boring topics. So at GCS, uh, well, it was O level last year of O levels. I was. You could do an optional topic, and she chosen this one on innovations in agriculture during the industrial revolution which really if you're 14 is not very interesting frankly um anyway and so i hated it i did my mock o levels exams and there was a question on there about the corn laws and i didn't even know what they were uh, so I, it was the question was why were they abolished i didn't even know what they were and then we got a new teacher called mr fennick and my mum had told me if I really failed the mock, then I could give up history. And I, so I told him that with great glee. And so he handed back my paper with 45% written on it, uh, which was then what you got for a C. And I knew it was a lie and I was really angry. And then he said, well, don't be angry. It's because I think you could be really good at this. Why don't you choose a special topic? Because as I understand it, you don't want to learn about agricultural innovations and the Industrial Revolution. And so I said I wanted to do the general strike because I was a bit lefty. Oh. Uh, and so we did the general strike. And in fact, I did my uh, my French oral exam for O-level. My specialist topic for that was uh, general strike as well, which I think oh, took the exam a bit by surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it ever since. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. My experience of social economic history was totally the opposite. I had a fabulous, fabulous history. Weirdly, therefore, grew up grew up knowing that Jethro Tull was a seed drill, and not and was very confused when people started talking about music. And um, <laughs> but it all, but it came out of it with a sense of of the protest strength of the British people. So it just shows it's about how you teach these things as well, isn't it? My goodness. Mm-hmm. But Kate, you moved to your current school in 2017. Um, yeah. Can you? Talk us through why and how you started to adjust your curriculum when you arrived. 
Yeah, so uh, I moved to my school in Bristol um, as uh, a parallel move as head of humanities, but I moved from being part-time for 14 years to being full-time to a new school. I'd been at my previous school for 14 years. I was very well established, and I'll be honest, the whole process was quite painful and challenging. Uh, and about two and a half weeks in, a girl in my a year 10 class looked up at me with a very cross look generally that she'd got me rather than the teacher she'd wanted to have and just said and miss can you tell me why we don't do any positive back history in this mm. and I just took a deep breath I to be honest in my back of my mind I was thinking I haven't really got a clue what you've done I've literally you know <laughs> I'm surviving lesson to lesson here at this point and I so rather feebly said well well we, we do civil rights and thinking I think we do and then she just looked at me straight in the eye and said miss that's not positive black history that's how black people have responded to oppression Ooh, and I wow, said brilliant yeah wow and I said <laughs> yes you're right and I said so there and then I said I need to think about this and I want to talk to you about this, but actually this isn't the moment because we are supposed to be doing a lesson on the New Deal. So, <laughs> um, but it just absolutely stuck with me that I'm teaching in a in a very, very diverse school in the atrium of the school where I teach. They have a flag for every um, nationality that students in our school community identify with. Um, and there are currently 89 in the atrium of our school. Wow. So, um it just really made me think and start reading straight away and looking at the history that had that was there already and thinking about how we could make it better. So I started from the point of view of trying to make sure there was positive, celebratory black history. And it's kind of snowballed from there, really. Mm. It must have been a really, really kind of interesting move, because I know, you know, I know that you taught in a very different context before you moved to your current school. And um, so could you tell us a bit about that and, and kind of what you would do differently there now if you were a teacher there today or if you were yeah, the teacher you are today? Yeah, I think the school I taught at before had um, was almost exclusively white, predominantly white working class. And there were definitely uh attitudes within the community that we were very mindful of i think we were very mindful of islamophobia in the media and within the community while i was there and so we'd done quite a lot to try and address that um so we taught um for example there our unit on the medieval world was a comparative unit between europe and um and persia in the middle ages to try and really celebrate islamic achievement and Islamic scientific achievements in in the Middle Ages. Um, I remember being very, very pleased that one of my children who actually couldn't reliably spell any form of there, you know, there are lots of forms of there, but she couldn't actually reliably spell any of them, but she could spell astrolabe correctly. Oh. <laughs> I did wonder if I'd really focused on the right element of literacy, but <laughs> I was quite chuffed with that. Um, so we were, we were doing stuff. I was mindful that I didn't want a white male curriculum, but it was, also, I mean, another angle was that the school I was at was persistently RI, requires improvement, and the driver all the time, all the time, was trying to get another grade out of the kids here, there, and everywhere to try and get out of RI. The school I'm at now, there's a lot more space for 
creative, innovative thinking because the school's in a very different place. But if I was back at my previous school now, I think the issue of Islamophobia is one I would be trying to increase the extent to which we're addressing it. And, um, and also, there is no doubt that there were, as, as all over the place, a lot of um, uh, fairly... Um, entrenched racist attitudes um and i think we i would be now seeking to directly address that so development of an anti-racist curriculum mm. addressing common racist tropes around black victimhood around that there is any that, that around lumping all people of color into one kind of giant department somehow with just a nonsense and around association with black people with crime urban crime knife crime that kind of thing because i think people in that community saw these racist tropes through the media all the time drip 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 and i would just like if i was back there i would be trying to find a different drip feed mm. and i would be trying to do that explicitly i think a lot of what i did before with the, trying to address Islamophobia there was uh, a bit subtle for my taste now. We were trying to do it almost without the kids noticing. We're hoping that by teach celebrating the achievements of medieval Persia, that children will that that will start to challenge their, their any Islamophobia they may have. Mm. Um, and I think well, we, but we never said that, and that's of course completely counter to good history teaching, to good teaching of any kind, isn't it? Yeah, making the implicit explicit, but we don't do it in this area. So that's the other thing is I would be explicitly saying this is why we're studying this. <laughs> yes, um, and just to make it really clear, yeah, what the what you want the outcome to be, yeah. Yes, absolutely, yeah, mm. yeah. Mm, fantastic. Can you say just a little bit more as well about um, what we should be doing in relation to, in in your view, in relation to. Um, developing a, a very difficult phrase for me that sort of cultural capital though as as british people and sort of the the sense of britishness and what is british because i know you said something powerfully earlier on when we were talking in conversation before this about that um yeah so this is something in conversations over the summer with the global majority network which is a network of um teachers of color within within bristol um and one of the teachers from there made the point to me that that one of the mo one of the really specifically British and very common British racist tropes is an association between being British and being white and feeling and an and an attitude that black people are somehow slightly less British. And this is something that in the history classroom we are have such a powerful position to address through what we teach, through making the point that 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 that's just a nonsense apart from anything else. Um and I think, um, but I think our children of colour are growing up British and there is a common canon of knowledge of British history, which is part of our, part of our Britishness, part of stuff that is just assumed that we know. And that issue of cultural capital comes back again and again. So I'll give an example. Um, in the first wave of COVID with the testing issue, there was a lot of references to little boats. Now, no one has to tell me or my family that that's a reference to Dunkirk. My youngest child was like, what are they talking about with boats? And everyone turns around and said, oh, Martha, and tell her what it's about. Um, but you could also have references to, 
another phrase I heard was, oh, it's all a bit, it's like Pearl Harbor, as in something sneaking in. If you've never studied Pearl Harbor, you don't get that. If you've never studied Dunkirk, you don't understand why people are talking about little boats. You get references to 1066 all the time. Um, and I think we're teaching our children British history is a, it, because we are equipping them to be part of British society. That sense of shared history, it's like the roots that feed the tree of community and, it, and those roots have to be the whole package integrated together. So I think what we what I feel we should be trying to do is teach an accurate and integrated British history that reflects the history, the long history of people of colour in this country, the long contribution of people of, of colour to the building of this country. But we can't just chuck out all the other stuff because then we are disadvantaging children because we're going to make them feel less like they belong because they won't understand the discussions mm. that include references to this common <laughs> canon of knowledge. So I think we have to be really careful about making sure that what we're doing is equipping children with yeah that common canon of knowledge, I think. Thank you. That's really clear. And the, it, it's a journey that goes in stages, isn't it, to this this better history, this this better history where students can see themselves in the past and where our assumptions of the framing of narratives are always being challenged. Um, have you got any sort of help advice really as somebody that is 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 part way along this journey? What what are the stages on the journey? How do you how do you start? How do you progress? I think you start, and it sounds really obvious, but I think you start by wanting to do it is the first thing, recognizing that there's a need. And I think then for an awful lot of us, and I am definitely in that department, a recognition of our lack of knowledge and understanding I am very much the product of a very colonized curriculum a very colonized curriculum all the way through my education and I've taught a colonized national curriculum for many years and despite having had a long interest in this area you know I spent a lot of the summer reading and reflecting very profoundly and there is I think the book I would really recommend actually is Rennie, Rennie Eddowes Hodge Lodge um, why I'm not talking to white people about race that really profoundly impacted me so I think you start from what you want to do and what you want to achieve and you start by educating yourself and, and it's very easy now to build a network of people you're in some sort of contact with who have similar interests. Um, I think then you've got to think about your own school and I think the, the, for your own community, you want to your children to recognise themselves within that curriculum and feel the sense of value that comes from that. Um, within my own school, I've written a unit on Somali history and the impact that's had from the children. They, you know, even just having a pile of books on my desk on Somali history. And I, well, why have you got a pile of books on Somali history, miss? And they're, well, well, because I'm writing a unit on Somali history. Why are you doing that? Because 15 to 20 percent of the school are, are of Somali heritage. So I feel like we ought to know something about it. Just sort of, you know, just starting from the point of view of thinking really profoundly for your children. What is it important that they see? Mm. in their curriculum and I think then you start and it's very easy to dismiss what people are doing as tokenistic and I, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty anti-dismissing stuff as tokenistic I think if your intention is to be tokenistic then don't bother frankly but if your intention is to do something profound and good 
then you have to start with one small step and then two small steps. And each of those little things are very small, but that each little thing can be very profoundly impactful, particularly for marginalized students um, or students who are part of marginalized communities. Um, you know, I put up a poster of a, of a Somali person just because I happened to have an afternoon and I couldn't be bothered to do my marking, really. <laughs> uh, and the number of comments from staff and students, I was a bit blown away, really, by the impact that very small things can have. And on their own, that's a very small impact. But the biggest impact is if it's part of a bigger journey. I think as well, we need to be kind to ourselves. There's a lot of people on Twitter, which worries me, who are trying to throw out their whole Keystroke 3 curriculum, replan the whole thing. And we just can't do that. We have to, the best thing we can do as teachers who want to do a really good job of being teachers is, is be in teaching. So let's not, you know, drive ourselves into the ground. And uh, Hugh Richardson had a really good quote, which was that decolonization is for the 2020s, not 2020. This is a long process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think just do what you can at any one point and be just mindful all the time. What's the big thing that you're moving towards? And each little thing you do moves you a little bit closer to that big thing. I think. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And I know that you um, I know that you've been talking a bit about your own inquiry questions as well and thinking about how you can change the. Um, change the perspective of those it's just it's all about more reading isn't it more reading and more thinking and more discussion and and but, but it just all takes you down the the um yeah takes you down the road towards your final destination really doesn't it yeah and I think also I think about asking for help there's no you know there's a huge community of history teachers out there who are really engaged in this process and really interested in it and really up for helping and I know Twitter isn't everybody's bag but I, I think it's absolutely invaluable in this area and if you were to say I want I'm, I'm trying to find an inquiry question to do with protests in Britain in the 1960s or the Harlem Renaissance or the or whatever you want to do, you know, there will be no shortage of people with different ideas, which just gives you a breadth of things to think about. Um, and I think a really good example would be we're rewriting our unit on transatlantic slavery. And I wanted to write, um, I was writing some stuff about the Middle Passage and I really wanted to focus on resistance the varied ongoing ways that 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 enslaved people from the African West Coast resisted all the time on that passage and so I thought well if you look at the way that boats were designed it's quite obvious that that every journey faced every, every journey had resisting people on it because the amount of money they spent trying to equip their boats for defense basically mm. and so my question came I came to this question of how does what does the design of uh, slaving ships tell us about the resistance of enslaved people and I thought I'll try and make it a bit less wordy nearer the time but that was basically what I went on and then a teacher said to me yeah but you're actually still looking at it from the slave trader perspective your question is how did white people respond to resistance rather than turning that around and for the children of colour in your classroom, particularly the ones of of of, of Jamaican heritage, of which I teach, of which I teach a lot, um, they want to see their story central. Mm. And that was such a powerful thing. And so that's something I'm trying to do all the time: is looking at a question 
my instinct is to ask a question that I find interesting. And that, of course, comes from my own mind, which is the product of my own upbringing and my own education and everything else. And my slightly obsessive interest in boats in this case. Um, <laughs> but so I think just ask advice. And so I turned it just just made it much simpler. Um, how did enslaved people resist on the Middle Passage? And that says to every child coming in the room, this is what we're talking about today. Um, and I think that that's been really powerful and it's it's really difficult. I think partly it's difficult because I'm I'm, I'm, I'm maybe I'm a bit older. I, I think maybe that makes it more difficult that I've been in part of this system for a long time. I think I think for younger teachers, it, it's a, a bit easier in that many of them have had a relative a much less colonized university education, at least, I think. But yeah, it's. It, you have to stop and think but I would just emphasize with all of this that there is so much support and help from the history teaching community out there so use it yeah I I, th I really feel like that's that's coming to its own like the 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 unex, un, uh, what's the word unintended consequence of covid is the amount of online meetings yeah. that you can now have and how that's just become a really normal thing um and so i think being able to access all of the all of the good stuff out there at the moment is it, you know it's really important you can have those conversations with people online even if you don't you can't have them in your department or you don't have much of a department to talk to to about the old department that was all slt i mean as an example if you take teaching of transatlantic slavery which which is really important but but is it's so hard to get just right, I think. Um, but if you were to put on Twitter as an example, you know, I really want to profoundly think about how we teach it and how to approach it. Is anyone interested in a Zoom meeting next week? I am willing to, to bet 50 quid that you would get eight people turning up who you've never yeah. met before and who will all have come from different perspectives, be at different points, have read different books, and together you'll produce something really, really good. Mm. Yeah. And that's that's really got to the heart of it for me, I think, there, because you probably even can draw on somebody that's working in the field historically um, or if mm. you're, you're lucky, because there's so many people generously sharing as well. But also it's not about that. Have you got a completed scheme of work or have you got a completed lesson or have you got an assessment on even worse on, say, transatlantic slavery? Oh. It's about can we get together and talk about what we're trying to do here and then ha yeah. what would be the angle for my students and for your students and and, and working collectively and and god we're powerful doing that aren't we and we can yeah. we can make a lot of change it's been fantastic talking to you about this kate and and uh, you know maybe we we should uh, do a repeat podcast on a different topic at some point um because i know you're keeping thinking about this but uh for for a first podcast with with you as guests thank you so much for for your yeah. insight and your wisdom and for sharing so generously with us um, and so openly and honestly your your journey with this. Well, thank you for asking me. Yeah. Thank you. It's been fascinating. Thanks very much. Thank you.